This is Breaking Silos, and I'm Asao Inouye. And I'm Shane Wood, and we're scholars and teachers in rhetoric and composition looking to engage in conversations outside our field. And this is a podcast that engages in deep discussions about guest scholarship and the ways that scholarship may teach or assess language and communication in college classroom. Our goal is to draw on a range of perspectives that might inform how we approach teaching and writing, what we can learn from others as a field. Well, today, this is our very first episode, and we're really, really honored uh, and uh, to introduce and to talk with Dr. Jennifer Randall. Dr. Jennifer Randall is the Dunn Family Endowed Professor of Psychometrics and Test Development in the Marsall School of Education at the University of Michigan. She is also the founding president of the Center for Measurement Justice, a research center that seeks to inspire, prepare, and support a critical mass of measurement professionals and partners as they work towards a justice-oriented assessment and measurement system. Her scholarship focuses on three interconnected themes. One, educational assessment measurement as colonization and marginalization. Two, representation in the field of measurement. And three, exploring, documenting what a justice-oriented assessment measurement space could look like. Welcome, Dr. Uh, Jennifer Randall. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How are you today? I can't complain. I cannot. Good. Good. <laughs> well, we are, uh, we are super thankful um, that, that you're here and uh, that you agreed uh, to, to engage in this conversation with us today. And we, I know Asao and I have both have been really looking forward to this this discussion and excited to to learn and, and listen more from you and your great work. Um, so today our, our conversation is focused on your article, Color Neutral is Not a Thing, Redefining Construct Definition and Representation Through a Justice-Oriented Critical Anti-Racist Lens. And this was published for those listeners out there in Educational Measurement Issues and Practice in Winter 2021. Yeah, and so um, I'm going to ask this really big, thick question, and part of it is for the benefit of uh, our audience who may not uh, be uh, assessment or measurement experts or know a lot about the terms. So I'm going to define a few things. So it's going to be a little long, and uh, I'm getting going to get better at making these questions shorter. But in, right now, I hope that our audience and you, uh, Jennifer, will will uh, have some grace with me. So so it's going to take a bit to get through this, but I think it's a, a really interesting. Um, question the four writing teachers that we might consider for writing classrooms. So here it goes. Um, so for the audience, um, this is what I'd like to um, make sure we understand. It's really about two concepts or two terms um, that you use that are central to your discussion. These terms um, uh, are not only central, but they're, they are, they, they're central to the field. One is a construct. So uh, and the other is validation. A construct is an abstraction that references what a test is testing for, such as writing ability, reading ability, or the skill of analyzing texts. This means that constructs are created by the test makers and are grounded in theories and ideas about the world, people, and whatever the test makers hope to understand better about those, um, those um, taking the test. Now, validation, on the other hand, is essentially an ongoing process of research on a test or assessment. These processes are ways that tests get revised and made better. 
They are the ways that test developers verify the uses or interpretations of the test results. Okay, so there's the, 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 the ground rules or the definitions. Now let me get to the question. Um, so Jennifer, in your article, you consider the racist ways that construct validation processes reify whiteness and affirm or validate racist tests. You examine the definition of construct underrepresentation given by the standards for educational and psychological testing and argue that its use in validation processes is white supremacist. You also critique the opportunity to learn argument that often gets voiced as a way to justify racial unequal outcomes of tests. In effect, you argue that all learning, even learning math, is culturally and socially situated practices, meaning no one learns anything in neutral conditions or in neutral ways. This, um, you argue, contradicts the ways tests are made, since they assume a neutrality of contexts of learning and in what they test for, that is, the constructs. So as one solution to this problem, you offer an anti-racist framework for designing construct definition and representation in assessments of student learning. This requires, as you say, a firm commitment to, an, to an anti-racist framework for assessment design and revisions. You explain the four principles of such a framework might be, one, the field's commitment to neutrality or an absence, and these are your words, or an absence of ra racism is, in effect, sustaining white supremacist logics and continues to actively harm minoritized students. Two, a racist-oriented approach to construct definition requires an explicit anti-racist framing. Three, lack of context is an illusion rooted in white supremacist hegemony, and when the context is not clear or seemingly not present, the implied context historically has been whiteness. And four, the opportunity to learn argument should not be used to sustain the use of assessments that privilege white ways of knowing, understanding, which are inherently unjust. Okay, given all that, what can writing teachers learn from your argument about constructs and this framework for their own assessments in, say, writing classrooms? Thank you for that question. Before I begin, I just want to clarify one thing because I know some of the readers, listeners have not read the article. Um, the second part was a justice-oriented approach um, is, um, is, is necessary with the um, anti-racist framing. I think you said an, uh, a racist-oriented approach. Um, I don't want people thinking I'm out there. <laughs> Sorry about, if I, I, I probably did misread that. Sorry, <laughs> Th thanks for the correction. <laughs> oh Lord, he's gonna get me fired. <laughs> I, no, I don't wanna do that. <laughs> Oh gosh! Um, no, thank you. So that would, that would be an incredible episode one, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, horrible outcomes to to, to a podcast. <laughs> uh, not at all um, impossible. This is my very first podcast, so you'll also have to finish with um, as I go through this process with you. But um, I do want to say that if I had to pick a space um, where this work where I'm talking about a justice-oriented approach to assessment is the most important. And I don't wanna pick, but I'm just saying, if I had to, I would actually pick the writing space. And, mm -hmm. and it's not because I think the skill of writing is more important than any other skill, um, excuse me, writing experts, but because I think human language, our language defines us in so many really important ways. And so somebody can be so-called bad at math and have that mean very little in the world. In mm. fact, a hundred other people standing within a thousand feet would say, me too, 
kind of <laughs> gleefully, like it's some kind of special club, right? Because being bad at math is just something you can be and still be considered human. Now there's an entire literature, by the way, um, about how bad at math is not an actual thing. And I completely agree with all of that, but I'm just trying to make a point here when I say, even if you are bad at math, not a whole lot of people care. But writing, that represents your language, that's your ability to communicate with other humans. You can't be so-called bad at it, and I believe still be considered fully human. So when you denigrate a person's language, you just, you just cut really deeply into their spirits and you leave a wound. And for some of those, some, some people, and myself included, I count myself among this, you, you kind of cover up that wound over time with a lot of white supremacist logics that tell you, that told me that I deserve that cut. Mm -hmm. This is why I feel like it's so really important to disrupt that cycle early in writing classrooms, beginning in elementary school, wherever writing is happening, I think it's really important that we disrupt these, some of these ideas. And so this is where, for me, I think the very idea of standard edited American English or what April Baker Bell has referred to as white mainstream English mm -hmm. needs to be erased from our vernacular. We have convinced ourselves that this English is the standard and that it's somehow neutral when it so clearly represents the English of whiteness. And we define entire constructs around white mainstream English. You know, I've just been asking myself in the last few years, why are double negatives inappropriate in writing? Because <laughs> I can tell you, ain't nothing like a double negative. <laughs> Convey to you that I am serious about what I'm about to say to you. And why can't I end the sentence with a preposition? Because it doesn't make sense in Latin, which is a language, <laughs> uh, because it certainly still makes sense in Black English, which is very much a living language right now. So getting back to the four principles, getting back to your question, Sal. Um, but let me, let, me, let me pause you for a sec, because I think you bring up a, really, a couple of really important points that I want to just underscore. Maybe we can talk just for a few minutes about. And I mean, some of the things that you raise are so important. They're the, they're the narratives that we tell ourselves, the scripts in our society, whether they're in, in the, the popular culture or whether they're in our classrooms about language and about what language means that have deep bearing on the rubrics and constructs and outcomes that teachers are supposed to abide by or use in their classrooms and grade by or use to evaluate and give feedback to. So to me, like, I, I mean, I absolutely agree with you that, that you're right. I mean, when I think about the common narratives that circulate in our culture, just generally when the, the ones that I know students come in walking in with, like in their heads that they've heard or seen enacted math and isn't, it doesn't hold the same level as even though, like, I, I think I, I agree with you, even though I don't, I don't know that literature about like, nobody's bad at math. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's probably something out of it that would help me understand this better. But, but I do know there's lots of narratives around languaging being, you know, if you're not good at it by by some standard from school or from what that you are somehow deficient, you're not good or you haven't worked hard enough or whatever the case is. So to me, those things feel like they're part they're they're parts of what makes a construct for a classroom in many ways. That is, they're the narratives that feed into and say, oh, that's what we, of course, this is the common sense. Like, of course, it's like this way because smart people do this and and they talk like this or they don't talk like that. Um, even if we don't always say it quite like that, I think we kind of logic that way in, a, in some ways. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Shane, were you about to yeah, say no, that? No, and, it, and it, it makes me think of how many rubrics include some type of category 
of language or grammar or spelling and mechanics that are really just whiteness, right? And it actually makes me think of uh, Gloria Unzaldúa's work on how to tame a wild tongue. And then there's like a specific quote in that piece where Unzaldúa says, I am my language, right? So like, if you really want to hurt me, talk bad about my language. Yeah. And then how these rubrics or this criteria, that language is often em embodied or embraced, but it is towards a, a, a white standardized English language that we're referring to and then assessing students based off of, right? And it, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think too, like, how do we play with that category to embrace that language use that language variation is a norm that that standard standardization is is a myth right right yeah absolutely i think um and i don't want to i don't want to get ahead of all your questions myself but i but i I'm, I'm always thinking about rubrics in particular right because rubrics are how we typically as classroom teachers anyway, define our constructs, right? That's how a student knows what the construct is. They look at the rubric. This is the thing um, that I need to know, that I'm supposed to know, that I'm expected to know, to do well in this space. And um, for me personally, it is still a struggle. I'm, I'm very open about how even though I recognize white supremacist logics have been showing up the entirety of my educational experience and my professional experience when it comes to writing. Um, and I am able to uncover some of it now. It's still really hard for me to write a rubric um, that doesn't perpetuate those same logics. And you know, I'll come back to a rubric the next year and with my students, I try to democratize the process. So it's like, okay, this is a sacrificial draft of a rubric that existed last year. Let's talk about this rubric, where you agree, don't agree. Let's try to work something out together here. And I was in front of a class, I don't know, maybe two years ago. And um, I was actually, wasn't, wasn't during COVID because I was standing in front of them and I'm showing them this rubric and we're going through how to write their research paper. And all of a this line and I can't even remember what was in it but it had something to do with grammar shame and immediately it was like oh my god that's racist like <laughs> and and I mean you know very embarrassed because it was a social justice stats class that we were writing a, a research paper and immediately <laughs> I saw the racism right there on on the page now why I didn't notice it the year before I have absolutely no idea um but to me it's it, it just means, first of all, we have to give everyone grace when we're trying to do this work. And it's more about just recognizing that it exists. Um, and, and that's where I feel like people in assessment and measurement are a little bit behind in terms of <laughs> recognizing that white supremacist logics are in fact showing up in our rubrics, particularly around writing, especially around writing at every grade level. 
I think that's such an important advice really for any writing teacher or teacher who uses writing and rubrics to say, give yourself some grace and give you, and I like the activity that you described that you sit with your students the next year and investigate the rubric from the previous course and to, to figure out what's wrong with this thing or what, how do we make it different or better or, or work for us in this moment? And then next year, probably going to have something else, right? Like, because it's not, it's a different group and a different time and a different everything. So I think that seems like really important, um, advice because it it leverages for me at least it leverages the languagelings in the room and not some imagined whatever you know in my head <laughs> and then that stays static and then everyone you got all got to confine you know uh, you know toe this line that i that i have in my head so exactly yeah it recognizes that language is living and evolving right and right. it's like culture is dynamic i feel like so is language so our rubrics mm -hmm. have to also be dynamic and the rubric mm -hmm. that i developed 6 years ago <laughs> going to be appropriate for for the group of students sitting in front of me absolutely right so do you want to um did we i know we it seems like we covered the first part of that question a little bit i'm just trying to keep us uh, on track do you want to did i know i interrupted you before you wanted to say something probably about that framework part in this the second oh yes yes you am. so yeah i'll speak a little bit to that because i because you you brought it up these kind of these four principles that i lay out um and how i think they relate in thinking about writing assessment in particular. Um, first, by just saying clearly and plainly, so people understand me, that, that white mainstream English is not neutral. And saying that it's some standardized or neutral way of communicating via writer writing is, is, is a white supremacist logic, okay? Um, and an anti-racist framing would, um, would have writing instructors really critically interrogate why white mainstream English is supposedly better or not in whatever contact, whatever context there is, and what other Englishes might also do the trick, so to speak, right? So if you're thinking about what it would look like to be a critical writing and structure, really thinking about it in that way. Um, and since standard edited American English or white mainstream English has this kind of illusion of neutrality, I think if you were to poll all of the writing instructors across the United States, they would tell you that standard edited American English is the neutral English or the neutral language in which students um, should be communicating in. And, and, you know, I would want writing instructors to say to students, if you write this way, uh, or writing instructors stay, say to students, I think with white mainstream English, if you write this way, it will transfer across multiple contexts and people. So write this way. Um, and that's how they standardize it or make it neutral. And the implication of that for me, I think, is really saying that your way of writing and thinking and communicating is so ridiculous that people couldn't possibly understand you if you put it down on paper, right? Um, and I think to that to that fourth point is if, if and so this is where you're going to get my pet peeve and then I'll move on. But if one more person, and I mean a person of color, or otherwise tells me that all of our students, and by our, I'm referring to black students, that all they need is more exposure to whiteness, basically, white <laughs> talk, white writing, I might actually lose my mind. Now, I am not saying that opportunity to learn is not a problem, because I'm not insane. I know that white middle-class kids have access to everything, and poor black kids have access to whatever those schools don't actually want sometimes including their worst teachers. This country is racist, so it follows that their schools will be too. I am not arguing against um, 
opportunity to learn being a real thing. It is a thing. That is not the point of my argument. But I am saying that it's not an excuse to just kind of disingenuously tell students that their ways of communicating are the wrong ways because they haven't had the opportunity to learn whiteness. This is what I want to move away from. So when you ask me what can writing teachers learn from this framework, I'm, you know, I think briefly I would just say, if you're in a classroom space where it's obvious that students speak or write or sing or dance and marginalize Englishes, then it becomes your responsibility to learn the rules of those linguistic systems and then treat them as if they were mainstream. So if you look at your rubrics, which are, again, we talked about how they really represent for most of us what the construct is. And you see those expressions that Shane was talking about, like use this proper grammar. Mm -hmm. Then you need to really think about what that construct is specifically that you're trying to get at and wonder perhaps if what you're actually getting at is something white supremacist. That's where I see kind of my framework showing up in writing assessment. Yeah, and, and I guess my... Uh... As you were describing that, um, I was thinking about my typical response to this, the same questions about like, um, usually what I hear is the preparation argument. Well, I got to prepare myself because this is the language of success of whatever. And they might even agree. Yeah, that it's it comes out of white people, white spaces, white groups. It's white, it's white language. absolutely. But it's the language of success or the language of this area. So we might even say it's appropriate, even though I, I want to be very careful about that. That word is not that it does not make it uh, you know. so. Nevertheless, my argument has been, well, if we really believe that all languages are equal in terms of communicative ability, in terms of uh, and where they come from, what they do, what they can do in the world, then that's also disingenuous to say that, that because we're then we're just ignoring the history of how that particular standardized version got there and became dominant and hegemonic. And on top of that, we then punish um, people for being who they are and saying, hey, this is going to be this whipping is going to be good for you. It's yes. make you better tomorrow. And in, yes. in reality, I don't think it actually does. Like it actually just makes us deeply uh, hurt and regretful about the education that we're supposed to be getting. And then everyone self-blames themselves. They like the, you know, they, they just say, like, well, I'm just not a good student. I'm just I'm not good at doing that because clearly they're trying to help me and, and I just keep getting F's and I just keep getting or whatever, or whatever the case be. So, but so I'm thinking about that preparation argument. Do you have a response to or a thoughts on? Because that's the other version of this. Well, I got I'm I'm supposed to prepare my students, and I, they have to prepare with this dominant language, you know. Yes, I get that often. <laughs> All the time, I, I get that that argument. You know, Jamila Scott. I heard her say once um, that um, that white mainstream English um, people always refer to it as like the language of power, right? Mm -hmm. And she always says, no, it's actually the language of people in power. Yeah, <laughs> then then it also feels like we can all shift right like if we say it that way in power then who's in power can shift and mm -hmm. so language can also shift and so that argument i feel like starts to fall apart if you mm -hmm. think about it from her point of view now i also want to say i do not have beef with white mainstream english in principle why would I have beef with that language? That's somebody's language, they can have it. My beef is that we say it's superior. I see, you know, if you're sitting in a room with a bunch of students who are speaking African-American vernacular English, you know that's their language. I don't understand why you can't teach them 
to operate and work and write and teach them the rules of that language. You can also teach them the rules of white mainstream English. In my head, I'm imagining a fifth grade classroom where they're teaching it like you teach foreign language, right? Like, okay, this is how you would say it in white mainstream English. This is how you would say it in African-American English. And this is how you would say it in French, right? Like it becomes a conversation where students begin to learn early in their educational processes that these languages are equal because I am learning about all three right now simultaneously. And I'm getting to make the choice about which one I'm going to write in depending on what my mood is, right? Like whatever is coming up. And I think it has to start early. The problem is the people who are really thinking about this work, they're all like you, Asal, and Maya Poe, and they're like, all thinking about how do we shift it in college, right? Mm -hmm. oh. But the problem is they show up to you and it's all, they've already been, they've been brainwashed. And so <laughs> you're having to undo a lot so yeah. much and it's hard to undo it. It was hard to undo for myself, right? As a black woman, it's still hard for me to undo in my own writing. And I just feel like had my experience been different when I was younger, the way I was exposed, if it had not been um, the duty of my favorite teacher, I've written about this, my very favorite teacher mm -hmm. who just refused to allow me to say anything in black English, who corrected it constantly, unceasingly, never mind just in the writing, of course, I would have been thrown out of school, but even in the way I speak, had she gone about it differently, then my relationship with writing right now would not be a hate-hate. It is not a love-hate. It, it is an activity that I hate so very deeply, that I struggle with so very, very deeply because it just feels like a battle for me. And I think this is what we're doing to marginalized students yeah. all the time, beginning in kindergarten. We're just developing this hate, this hatred, this shame about languages that are beautiful, that do their job. You know, Jennifer, that breaks my heart to hear that you have this hate-hate relationship with, with language. Because, you know, but I under I completely understand what you're saying. I really do. Um, uh, so um, Shane, do you want to, uh, should we ask the next question or do we, is there more to say? I don't want us to to move past unless we've got more to, to talk about here. I mean, I could go on a long time about thinking thinking through some of these ex these uh, examples and details. Yeah, we can uh, jump back into the article. I, one, one thing that I was kind of thinking as you said that is that the posture, and I'm thinking of and, and like a teacher and then I'll jump into the, the question, but I'm thinking of a teacher that, um, says that because you, you say hey we need to learn the languages right like we need to learn the rules yes and i think a, maybe a response i don't want to assume for everyone would be like well, how do i begin the process of of learning the rules but what's really problematic about that statement is that you're in the classroom telling these students to learn this rule of white mainstream english <laughs> right so the responsibility that you're placing, the burden that you're placing on a student is one that you won't even take up yourself. And I think that's really introspective, self-reflective of if we respond in that way, we need to think about what we're saying, right? So I, I, that was just a sad little thing, but I'll jump to the, the text in the article here. So in, in your article, I think this is about two pages in, you write this and I highlighted this um, and I, I just want to kind of unpack this a little bit more. Quote, critical to the movement toward a justice-oriented approach to assessment design is the decentering of whiteness. 
And it is important to define this concept of whiteness for the reader, for it is this notion of whiteness that frequently goes unexamined or without critical consideration and educational assessment measurement. And then toward the end of this article, you offer some recommendations. Again, I would encourage everyone to read this article, look at this heuristic at the end. And then here's another quote of how to get to a justice-oriented assessment design. So this is really a, a three-part question, and feel free to choose any, any of these questions. But I, I think it's kind of scaffolding or, or building blocks to maybe a, a more fruitful conversation. One is who should be examining and, and decentering whiteness? And I, I have my own perspective, but I want to hear from you. Two, why do you think whiteness goes unexamined in, in educational measurement and assessment? And three, how might teachers go about negotiating potential challenges they face given their own context and maybe positionality in doing this decentering whiteness work? And I'm thinking particularly about maybe educators in, in states like Florida or Texas or teachers whose identities and positionalities are already marginalized. Absolutely. Um, so I think I'm going to start with your second question and then go back, if that's okay. Because I think- That's great, yeah. The why, right? And I think why it goes, examined, goes unexamined is because most of us don't even see whiteness, right? We have all been socialized since grade school to interpret good as whiteness and bad as everything else. So in my own mind, I'm not just seeing a manifestation of white ways of knowing and understanding, moving and being, I'm seeing the right way to know, to understand, to move and to be. And I think disrupting this is really hard in everyone, not just in, in, in people who identify as white, but this is hard to, to disrupt when you're working with black students or working with Latin students. It's because it requires just this really complete mind shift. It's like someone trying to explain to you or get you to understand that the color blue is actually yellow. You know, like get the hell out of here with that. But, but that's what it feels like to people, right? And even when you start to see that it's yellow, you're still left with this idea of, okay, now what am I going to do about it? Um, you know, I, there's a story, I have a student, I, used, I teach a, a course in classroom assessment. And a few years back, I was teaching this course and it was this lovely young woman who, who planned to be an elementary school teacher who was incidentally a lovely white woman going into elementary education. This is not at all surprising. Um, and we were engaging in a discussion in that class about the ways that white supremacist logic show up in assessments. And that day we were focusing on English language arts assessments. Um, and this wasn't like a heated conversation, you know, very typical, just students sharing their experiences, et cetera. Again, nearly every student in that class identified as white. Um, but at some point, a light went off in this student's head and she exclaimed really emphatically and with considerable volume, let me tell you, it starts in kindergarten, just like, boom. She just had this epiphany and her, re and, and I really appreciated seeing this kind of reorientation. It was a beautiful thing to see firsthand. But even after she had that epiphany, right, about the ways in which white supremacist logic show up in, the, in how we assess in ELA, we had to spend the rest of the semester in a really productive struggle, I would say, trying to figure out how to undo that harm, how to decenter whiteness in the types of assessments that she was going to be giving to her students. Now, in another case, I'm on a conference video call with 
a bunch of um, black administrators in a district that was primarily Hispanic and black. And I was describing a project in which we would, um, myself and colleagues would facilitate an anti-racist approach to writing, writing instruction for high school students around workplace English skills. Um, and when I tell you these people fought me to the end, getting back to what you said earlier, Sal, they were insisting that their students must learn to write in standard edited American English. They just kept saying that over and over and over again. And that what I was proposing, which was not to refuse to teach them standard edited American English, by the way, it was just not to belittle African-American vernacular English, but they said that what I was proposing would lead students to believing that AAVE was okay. And according to them, it just simply was not okay. And so they would rather a student not write at all. And when I tell you those students were not writing at all, they were not writing. So it's not like I was trying to shift their writing. You would say, write a cover letter and they would write five words and then sashay on out of the classroom. So, but she would rather they keep doing that. All of them would rather that they keep doing that um, and for fear that instead of that, they might actually get away with a double negative or a drop consonant, right? And so when you ask me the who, right, to your second question, I'm saying who should be examining, who should be decentering whiteness? I'm saying all of us have to really be thinking about that. I think black teachers and white teachers, um, we all have to figure out and be able to see that the color is not in fact blue, that it is indeed yellow. And how do we all productively struggle to do that work, to decenter whiteness in the ways we're thinking about how we assess writing or how we teach students to write. Um, now, I'm not gonna lie, that third question that you brought up, Sean, it really exhausts me personally. Like, how do we get teachers? How do we help teachers in this? I was at a conference back in June, um, the national, God only knows, but it's the, the heads <laughs> of school, the chiefs and heads of school, CCSSO. Um, and I'm, in a breakout session and talking about my work. And of course, you know, there are people from Florida and Texas in the room. And um, I'm not gonna lie, I said to you, I was like, I don't know if I can help you. Uh, and I was just like, <laughs> I'm talking to everybody else because I don't know what we're gonna do in your state, but there are plenty of states where I can actually have, have an impact and it, it just, it, it's really hard. But, so I'm not gonna sit here and pretend like I have a good answer um, because I also think that it's bigger than assessment, period. Like these issues are way bigger than assessment. But at the same time, I know that many of the issues we are facing vis-a-vis uh, -vis white supremacist thinking and logics with respect to what these minoritized students know and can do begins with and really is maintained by the larger assessment and measurement field. All of these logics that say that black students are inferior they begin with assessment. They begin with large scale standardized assessment. So even though I think it's a bigger problem, I think assessment contributes way more than anyone wants to admit that we contribute to this problem because we've convinced people and I count myself amongst the psychometricians out there. So I'm going to, going to say we, even though I disagree with all of us. Uh, <laughs> we've convinced people that our measures that we've been giving these students are neutral, that they're objective, that they're fair, that they're accurate. And you know, I've been trying to call bullshit for quite some time now because when because we've done that, there's gonna be just this tremendous amount of pushback if anybody tries to propose anything else. 
because they've already been convinced that what we have right now does the trick, right? And so they've already drank the Kool-Aid and there's no getting that, it's very difficult to get that out of their systems. So I don't know what to say to teachers right now in states like Florida and Texas, other than I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> working as hard and as fast as I can to really try to change that narrative so that, that people will understand that there is no such thing as objective measurement. It just, it's not a thing that all measurement is political um, and that a justice oriented approach is, is, is going to require a monumental shift in how all of us think and all of our mm -hmm. practices. But in the meantime, I just encourage them to be subversive. That's, yeah, that's what I can do. Yeah. I mean, you make me, uh, you remind me that that um, I've been saying for years that assessment, whether we're talking about large scale or uh, classroom assessment, assessment writ large, uh, is really one engineering of society, yeah. especially in language in LA, uh, uh, you know, language arts and uh, literacy classrooms. It's absolutely that in all the ways that you just described. But, and I, I love that you, that you highlight the ways in which um, your field sort of con has convinced themselves and perhaps lots of other stakeholders who have power to, for like, whether it's purse strings or whether it's decision-making to decide on things like what kind of languaging are we going to use and, and call for in a classroom or in a profession or whatever. So to me, whenever I hear the, the arguments around neutrality, objectivity, et cetera, that's just for me synonyms for whiteness. I mean, that's yes. that's all it really, because there's no such thing as those things if we accept all the postmodern arguments and post-structural arguments about about you know, <laughs> about relativism and, and we accept all those. So anyway, so so I, I, mean, I mean, you're really making me, um, uh, reminding me especially about some of those things that I've been thinking about over the years, but haven't had maybe a, a, as eloquent a way as you have to sort of voice them <laughs> or, or to, to, to teach. But I, you know what? One thing I want to uh, ask you about, because you, because I know that you're, I mean, I know that you're saying like places like Florida and Texas, what, I mean, there's so many other things going on that contribute to this kind of a problem in, in classrooms, whether we're talking about public school or, or college. I think, um, I wonder, like, I heard you say earlier that it's all of our responsibility, right? To like do stuff. So what, what's the subversive responsibility that say a, a, a writing teacher might take i know we've been talking a bit about that like around like how we how we treat rubrics what kind of discussions we have with students um but i'm wondering about other things as well that that really are attached to those things so rubrics are almost always attached to scoring and grading can we just get rid of that <laughs> can we can we get rid i mean can we get rid of the things that don't actually contribute to learning <laughs> that, oh, can we, you know so, I mean, I'm wondering, like, are there other practices or other things that you can think of that it, that might be reachable for a, for any writing teacher to think about and maybe incorporate in a literacy-based classroom or a classroom that uses writing to learn or writing to, to, to measure learning? Yeah. I mean, that's such a good question. I have colleagues I know who are like, we just have to get rid of the grades. Um, and I'm, I'm one of them, by the way. So... <laughs> to one of my colleagues like he's sitting in my office and I'm like you are way too radical for me to do uh, <laughs> I wished him I was like more power to you if you convince others of this I am right there behind you um because you know I do not enjoy grading it's the worst part of my job and Who, nobody enjoys anything about it right yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> even and students they don't would tell me I didn't have to do it I would stop immediately <laughs> immediately I would stop but I think where students benefit is from the feedback. Mm -hmm. 
And so for me, it's thinking about, especially around writing, what does that feedback look like? Um, And because I have um, this hateful relationship with writing, um, especially now that I've realized in these last few years how all of my feedback for years was so white supremacist, so racist, right? Like I had learned those rules. I saw no one can write and standard edited American English better than I can. I know those freaking rules, okay? Because I was paralyzed with fear around not using them when I was in high school, when I was in college, when I was in graduate school. So fear is a powerful motivator and it motivated me to learn that language like no one else could. Um, And then I forced my students to also write in that language and provide them feedback uh, around that. Um, And so for me, I think, fine, let's get what are grades, but the feedback is where we have to start thinking about how do we disrupt white supremacist logics and how do we... I mean, I I, I feel like some... Oh, go ahead, Shane. I was... I mean, I, I, I totally align with that, right? So I... I'm really big on examining our feedback practices and response practices. I agree. We should get rid of grades. I don't care anything about grades. They mean nothing to me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that these white supremacist habits disappear, right? We have to think through how are we responding to student writing that's reaffirming this quote unquote standardization or norm of a language practice that is privileged and full of power. Yes. And that's centered on whiteness, right? So it to me, it's this, again, critical attention, not to just a grade itself that is powerful and that represents, especially with writing, students' interpretation of their identity, but how are we also changing our feedback and response practices? And I want to say, I wish people like the two of you would um, create, I know you don't like grades, but for folks like me who do actually like rubrics, rubrics bring me some sort of peace. I mean, maybe this is part for, of this. For sure. <laughs> but if those existed, right, the fact is teachers do teach two assessments. They teach two tests. And so if we had some rubrics that really disrupted some of these problematic logics that 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 kind of forced teachers to think critically because the thinking critically was embedded inside the rubric, then I think that would shift what the feedback looked like, right? It, it wouldn't focus on whatever appropriate grammar is. It would focus on those other things that matter. Now, I don't know what that looks like because I am not a writing expert, but I do think that, that those rubrics would impact the way people are assessed, which would also impact the way students receive instruction. So I think assessment has a lot of power that's not going away, right? We're gonna be given at least large scale assessments until all three of us are dead at least. Um, and so how can we leverage those assessments to, to shift practice? You know, one thing that you're making me think about, especially with, with this discussion that focuses, we're focusing on the positive things that feedback to our students' languaging offers them and offers us perhaps, um, is that in one sense, feedback for writing teachers and those who use writing maybe in a way that's sort of, as you're saying, justice oriented is triage. <laughs> that, that is, it's saying your languaging is still valuable. 
Mm -hmm. um, your languaging isn't bad. It's your languaging. And it's just not what this, what, what so there's that aspect. But then there's also, I feel like I want to say when I think about my own um, education from K through 12, all the way to college, um, I, except for, I'm not speaking about like the informal things on the block or, or at home or in circle of friends, but in school, the formal setting where I get feedback on my languaging, where I did, I never got any black voice on my languaging. And I think I lost stuff for that. Like that. So like, I feel like if we, if we accept, which I do, the things you started with in our discussion, which is languaging is a part of your, who you are. It tells a lot about what you do. It's, it, it's personal. It's also social. Then it seems it, 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 crucial for us to have black voices on everyone's languaging in school. That, that is that we benefit just as much as one might say one benefits from having someone who knows the dominant discourse to give you that feedback on that. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. just, um, except we just use that as like, that's the standard. I'm saying for, put, take standards away. And what I'm hearing what you make me think about is it's there's a, a big gap here for for us to fill. Once we start filling that gap, we could call it representation in teachers. We could call it something else, whatever that is. I feel like that's the thing. That's one of the pieces that might be missing. That can one front that we might be fighting. They need to fight on, which is find ways that that to legitimize and to validate black voices on every student's writing that that's really important just as it's important for any other kind of voice on that writing to get um i mean did i i know you said you got that was that was part of your hate hate right at least a particular black voice that you got on your life early on were there any afterwards or sense that that you would say like we're encouraging or did the triage that was i mean i don't mean that in a bad way i just mean like in a good way you don't have to disclose. I'm, just, I'm no. I'm just I, I mean, I feel like I. I mean, I am. I. I know. I maybe I'm an extreme example, although I don't feel like I'm an extreme example. I feel like I'm. I'm pretty typical in that. Mm -hmm. um, all of my writing experiences were about how can about erasing everything that was me. Uh, that's and, yeah. Everything that was my family and everything that mattered. In mm -hmm. In, in my community. And I think for me, the hard part in looking back on it is that when it was happening to me, I didn't feel like something bad was happening to me. When it was happening mm -hmm. to me, I was feeling like people cared for me, right? Uh -huh. This is why they are telling me you have to change who you are. You have to change how, how you communicate because we want you to be successful. And this is the only way that you can be successful. And I believe that 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 they were that they were true. I do not believe that they were at all disingenuous. I believe they believe that also, and they wanted me to be successful. Um, the outcome of that, though, over time, was just a brutal dehumanization um, that I just, like I said, I have been unable to fully recover from, even when realizing. And, and and I think also the social engineering part, when you, when you spread that out over a large society, the engineering of it is is even worse, right? It's like, because it's magnified by, you know, so many more people in lives. So yeah, yeah, I see what you're- Any of my uh, former high school students are listening, my apologies. <laughs> All I can say is that I did not know better, so I did not do better, but, but now I know better. And I think too, Jennifer, again, what your story 
is is telling us in your experiences is telling us is the importance of how we use language when we feedback like when we respond to student writing because again based on 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 your experience and the way that you received that we're not talking about a letter grade we're yeah. talking about teachers' words on your writing yes. that were harmful yes. right and that's why I, I'm just so drawn to that. I'm so drawn to like this critical examination of response practices, because yes, I, I think grades, they certainly are harmful, but I also think that how we language through feedback to students can equally, if not more, harm them and harm how they see their own identity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So there's got to be a way to to leverage, for lack of a better term, the constructs in our heads mm -hmm. as teachers and the constructs in our students' papers and heads themselves uh, to find a productive and meaningful clash or mix, hybrid, you know, uh, in the learning space of the classroom. Um, and maybe that's um, maybe that's one way to think about what 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 we're what I think we're talking about. At least that's what how I'm hearing it. You know, we we uh, the question the next question I was going to ask we kind of covered this already in our. So I'm wanting to go to Shane's um, question, uh, the last question that we can. Did you want to ask that question? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I mean, another thing that I was just kind of thinking about is back to Jennifer's point of, of maybe designing and reconsidering how we design rubrics. And I would love for all three of us to go on a tour nationally and we can feel free. Anyone can reach out to us and then we can have these <laughs> conversations and facilitate yeah. with faculty elsewhere. For a certain amount of money really, will. Yeah. <laughs> I think it'd be really interesting <laughs> to really think through again, even if you're not doing points or, or grades, how do we design rubrics in a way, uh, Sal, it's actually making me think of like, your old work 2015 there's a blog post actually on the blog oh of, of yeah. dimensions right like coming, you're right. coming up with dimensions of writing not criteria right. yeah. of writing which yeah. and then i've i've morphed that over the last 10 years so it's a collaborative rubric building process with students where they identify what are the writing dimensions what are the things that we're valuing and whatever we're writing we come up with that that's a middle column in this rubric and the way that I've morphed it is on the left column, you have student reflection on those dimensions. So in some ways, maybe that's an opportunity for students to reflect on their own identity and think through how is this dimension playing out in my own writing? And then on the right column is my feedback reflecting on both their reflection and the dimension. So it's a little bit more kind of, I think, nuanced in a way of thinking through not just here's criteria, but really centering that reflection of the student. I don't know. All, all that to say, I, I think that it's great to pick up. And Jennifer, you just made, made me think of, of that whenever you mentioned, like, how are we constructing rubrics? Um, but my last question or the, the, the question that I had last was, um, I'm kind of wondering to what extent are we as educators, quote unquote, myth busters? And, and I've been thinking a lot about kind of larger cultural narrative myths about writing and language as we've kind of been talking about uh, in this conversation. Um, and that this isn't necessarily new to writing studies as a field to, to confront and contest these myths about writing, right? So for example, as we've been talking about, standard edited American English is good writing. Well, that's a myth, right? And I think we can all agree that's a myth, even though it's 
you know, perceived or maybe quote unquote valued as some cultural norm, but we know that's not true. It's a myth, right? Language variation, linguistic diversity, that's the norm. We, we language differently all the time. That's not an exception. So kind of, I'm, I'm curious, given your expertise and, and, and perspective, Jennifer, in a different field, I'm interested in hearing what other myths you see kind of most prevalent in and through writing assessment and measurement and, and how we might go about confronting, shifting, shaping uh, a more true and hopefully maybe more public persuading narrative about educational measurement. I love this this call back to the myth busters. That's a cool show. Uh, <laughs> who, hasn't, who hasn't watched it? Because, um, and I think this is in part why this question, especially when thinking about writing in particular, is is not easy for me because I I suspect that there are lots of myths that I still believe about mm. writing because writing isn't my jam, right? And so. <laughs> um, there's probably a whole lot out there that I'm 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 holding on to as these are the rules or this is how it has to be. And in fact, that is that it's all myth. But one came to mind to me um, when I was in graduate school, the first class I took um, had a professor say to us, he actually put it on a PowerPoint slide, that writing is thinking. Um, mm -hmm. That's what he wrote. And mm -hmm. I remember thinking at the time that that was just some kind of hippie nonsense. Uh, <laughs> Because in my head, writing was knowing, right? Mm -hmm. You understood a thing and you wrote that thing down so somebody else could understand it too. Like that is how um, it had been explained to me or at least how I'd been conceptualizing it up until that point. And by then I was nearly 30 years old. And I, I do think that a lot of us still operate under that paradigm, but I, you know, I think it's wrong. Um, now, I understand that it's wrong, even when it's hard for me to even tell myself over and over again that that is wrong, because writing is how um, I'm trying to get to a place of understanding first. And I think if we, and when I say we, I'm talking about those of us in educational spaces, if we can accept very easily, I feel that there are different ways of thinking, of approaching a problem, as of understanding, because we love to talk in education about individual differences. That's one of the, our favorite things to do. Even the most conservative among us appreciate the term individual differences, right? So if we can accept individual differences, kind of broadly speaking, then we should also be able to accept that writing can also be that. Um, so we have to let go of the myth that writing starts first by knowing. Like there has to be this kind of understanding that um, writing is the process of understanding and that there are going to be differences there. Um, so let me let me ask you, let me see if this changes what you're saying at all. So what if the myth that we're talking about is language? If you just said language is knowing, is that different? Like, so I mean, I'm guessing that your relationship your to languaging might you might think of it differently than your relationship to writing yeah uh that so what do you think does that does that change anything because i'm usually think i talk to my students i talk to others to writing teachers about languaging i'm not interested in writing i'm interested in communicating and languaging writ large so languaging is what i'm most so I'm, when i think about languaging it's like a much bigger universe of stuff really and then it gets to the personal and the social at the same time what do you is, what do you think I don't know. I feel like it stays the same for me. I don't, 
I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so don't. <laughs> I don't know if it shifts. I, I think. I guess I want to say, like, I wonder if if each person might have a shifting or different, some the same, some different orientation or relation to languaging or writing. Like your relation to writing is different than mine, even though. I'm guessing that our first formative years were were similar, at least in the respect that I grew up in a in a all black neighborhood in a North Las Vegas. I grew in in schools that all of my peers were black, and that's the languaging that I used and got drummed out of me by the time I was in fifth grade, and so forth and so on. And yet, my relation to language changed probably because of my relation to the culture at large, mm. also, and how I was able to move more easily without the encumbrances of other things or going races. So, so I'm wondering like our orientations to language and, and even the practices that go along with it, speaking, writing, music, other represent forms of representation might affect the myths that we believe, right? Like that we just sort of universalize. And does that make sense? Like, like, Oh, it's, this is a way for me. And now I universalize. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here. I'm wondering if, if languaging affects your myths at all the change of that i i feel like this this could be a whole response paper for me to sit down and do some of that <laughs> thinking stuff right like like start writing for out sure. what my response is and think about where i stand but i think when you even as you were talking and you were saying languaging my head was automatically replacing mm. that culture like the word culture oh. just kept popping into my head. Okay, good, good, yeah. And, and I, because I, I do think that language is, I don't know what the pie chart looks like with respect, <laughs> but language is a big old hunk of that pie chart, mm -hmm. right? That is, it is not a sliver. And I do feel and believe and know that culture is certainly dynamic, right? It's, it's so hard for me to even talk about or think about a capture because I'm like, it's always shifting and um, being able to, to, put my arms around it can be can be really difficult. I used to think it was more static, right? When I, I grew up in Southern United States, so I, I refer to myself as a Southern black person. And then I moved to New England when I was much older in the thirties. And I was like, this is not what my black looks like. I don't know what this blackie is. Like this is this is not this is not my culture. And so culture obviously is is dynamic and and move and moving. And I think language is, does that also. Um, and I'm, I've just, I don't know. I've, I, I've wondered if I had been New England Black, would my relationship to writing mm -hmm. be mm -hmm. different? Um, but I suspect it would, but I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it feels to me like this is the kind of teacher I am. It feels like this is, really great territory to explore with students like together like i learned so much from my students about when i respond to them and they respond back to me to about you know so we're having kind of a dialogue over their writing and languaging and i this like i want to learn i don't want my classes to be the same every you know i want to learn stuff so i feel like if i'm not learning a little bit with them at least a little bit um, then I don't know if I'm doing all of my job right, at least in the way I conceive of it as a, you know, 
you know, as a teacher who's trying to do socially just work in the classroom, but particularly around uh, assessment of language and thinking about language and judgment with students. So for me, that's like really crucial. And it, I, I can hear that that's really important to you as well in, in how you do. I mean, I know your work is often about large scale uh, assessments, which are, you know, the greater context for all of this, for all students. Every student has had been touched by negatively and positively and otherwise by uh, large scale assessments of all kinds. So I wonder um, to wrap to wrap. I know we're running out of time here. To wrap up, I wonder is there is there from this our conversation? Is there anything, any parting wisdom from either from this or something else you could or something that you're left with a question, a, a, an idea or something, anything that you want to leave us with? Um, uh, you, everything has been so in, interesting and meaningful and um, affirming for me. So I've really appreciated this engaging conversation. But I'm wondering if there's anything you want to leave us with. Um, actually, I'm going to leave you. I feel like I have a colleague who who straddles the measurement world, Ezekiel Dixon Roman hmm. at a Teachers College. And I heard him say once, and he probably doesn't even remember saying it because it was so long ago. But, uh, you know, he, he said that measurement is um, political. And so what will you measure? And to me, that has just, that stood out as I think about assessment across multiple content areas, right? Because I think about math also, and I think about science, and I used to be a social studies teacher, so I certainly think about all the ways I screwed my kids in social studies. Um, and, and so even as I'm creating rubrics now for my classes, right, the constructs that, that, that we're going to try to get at, I, I am always thinking about, okay, what is it? that I'm actually assessing here? And, and what's the messaging that I'm giving students through this assessment? I mean, even through my syllabus, every single thing, like what's the message that I'm putting forth by what I measure and how I weigh the different things that I measure. And so I feel like for those of us who are trying to do our best to move towards justice, who are, are trying to do our best to be, to be anti-racist, um, we have to come back to that, always looking at, okay, what is it that we're messaging through our assessment practices and our decisions? And if we don't like that message, for whatever reason, it doesn't sit right with us, then, then we need to shift. We, we need to make a change. And I say this to my colleagues in the measurement field all the time. If we're looking at how you've defined the construct, and in some cases we actually define the construct beyond the rubric, right? And you don't like that I walk into the room and I say to you, this is racist, this is white supremacist, et cetera. Then let's have a conversation about how you need to shift, right? The, the, the solution is not for you to pretend like that's not what we're seeing. <laughs> the solution is for you to actually shift what, what it is we're doing. So you know, all measurement is political. And so we have to decide what are we going to measure? That's, that's yeah. such a great parting word that I, that really applies to, mm -hmm. to all of us in education, right? The, the questions that you're having us think about of what are we measuring? What are we valuing? How is that sitting with us? And then how are we shifting? I think those are super applicable transferable questions that 
that all of us can ask. And I just am so thankful and grateful that that you brought that to mind. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I want to just also underline here, Jennifer, that you just said, which I think is equally educative, equally important in those classrooms is what's the hidden messages that travel with those, those, the, what we're measuring, right? So that there's, they're just as much a part of the learning that happens that we might have to unlearn with students or that we might lean into. I mean, just depends on what we're doing, but so those messages are so important also, just like all the the hidden back, you know, backhanded compliments that we, get, you know, that you might get when you're when you're uh, from up from feedback from a teacher or whatever. So, so yeah, um, I I absolutely agree. I love the emphasis and the 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 change or the the ending on the politics that we are doing a political act when we do assessment and we are making decisions that impact people in that way. And we could be thinking about that in that way. When we do, it might change the way we make those decisions. So, thank you so much, Jennifer. Yeah, so much. Thank, thank you, so much. you for thanks for being uh, such a an engaging and willing guest. We're really uh, uh, we really appreciate your time so much. Yes. Well, thank you for having me.